This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, um, everyone, uh, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this event with Charles Fernyhow. Charles is a psychologist with a particular interest in, think in thinking um, understood as an inner dialogue with the self. So it's no accident that he's also a best-selling novelist as well as being a professor at Durham University where he directs a project on inner voices. The subject of the book we will discuss, and it's a good book, uh, it doesn't come with these eyelashes, these are mine, <laughs> but it's... Uh, uh, and Charles will sign it in, in the bookshop after the event. The voices within the history and science of how we talk to ourselves. And the plan is for Charles to give us a presentation on his work in voice hearing, followed by some questions from me before a general question and answer session with you. So please welcome Charles to the stage. Thanks very much, Richard. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back here in Edinburgh, where some of the research that I'm going to talk about actually uh, was born. My, the focus of my book, as Richard says, is on the ordinary conversations that we have with ourselves. I'm talking about everyday experience, the kind of thing that happens to you when you're walking to the bus, when you're lying in the bath, when you're chopping vegetables in the kitchen. When we reflect on our own experience, we very often find, we very often want to, want to say that our experience is full of words. We are talking, we are hearing, we are listening. And I'm going to use a rather silly example to illustrate this. This is Mel Gibson in a uh, Hollywood rom-com from 2000 called What Women Want. And after a freak accident involving a bathtub, a hairdryer, and copious quantities of red wine, Mel, who plays an advertising executive called Nick Marshall, comes to with an uncanny ability to listen in to people's thoughts. He can read people's minds. And the interesting thing for me about this film, or one of several interesting things actually, is that when Mel listens in to people's thoughts, he hears them talking to themselves. To, to themselves. So when, for example, he's listening in to the thoughts of his boss, Darcy, he hears her talking. It's like an internal monologue that he can suddenly overhear in this uncanny way. And I put that up as a rather s silly demonstration, but nevertheless captures something, I think, quite important about how we understand thinking. Thinking does often seem to be a kind of conversation with ourselves. So there's other stuff going on as well. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that our thoughts, our uh, inner experience is full of images, memories, sensory expressions, sensory ex impressions, feelings in the body, and more abstract ideas. But words seem to be particularly important in this. So I want to do a quick demonstration of this by asking you what language you think in. Is there anybody here who's bilingual or speaks more than one language? Just put your hands up. Does anybody mind being picked on at random to keep your hand up if you don't mind ans answering a quick question? Can I, can I ask this lady here? What languages do you speak? English and Spanish. Oh, English, of course, I'm sure. But, um, so you speak Spanish. Uh, what language do you think in? Charles, you're going to have I'm to gonna, translate. I'm going yeah, to repeat yeah, this. Yeah, so it's sort of half and yeah, half. 
partly English, partly in Spanish. Maybe so if you're in Spain, you tend to do more thinking in, in, in Spanish, is that right? Yeah, if I get very annoyed, it's much easier to tell people what I think in Spanish. So if you get... <laughs> If you get very annoyed, it's much easier to tell people what you think in Spanish. That's fantastic. And, I, and it, it's really great when, when I hear people, thank you, very, thank you very much, when I hear people talking about their experience of bi being bilingual, you get these fascinating uh, nuances. People find different languages good for different things. But in a way, I'm, I'm interested in the point we got to before that. I'm interested in the point, in, in the fact that my question to you made any sense at all. When I said to you, what language do you think in, you didn't go, what does he mean? You all sort of seemed quite happy to accept that we do think in language, and if we speak different languages, we can think in different languages. And in a way, that's the, that's the most interesting thing for me. So we can come back to that point about different languages later on, perhaps. So as a psychologist, I'm interested in where this inner language comes from. Why do we talk to ourselves in our heads? Where does it come from? What functions does it serve? What does it do? What does it bias? And what is it like? And, and my thinking on this topic has been most strongly influenced by this amazing Russian psychologist called Lev Vygotsky, who's pictured here with his daughter, Gita. Uh, Vygotsky's ideas about inner speech were really quite simple, and I just want to give you a quick diagram to, to illustrate that. He, he thought that babies and young children start off in social exchanges. They engage with other people from the very first days of life. They're involved in dialogues which, as soon as language comes, al com comes along, become linguistic dialogues, exchanges of words. And then they go through a phase known as private speech. And this is something that you will observe for yourselves if you've ever spent any time with, a, with around children of age between about three and eight, perhaps. When children are on their own or when they're with other children, they tend to talk to themselves a lot out loud. This is known as private speech, and this is almost like children thinking out loud in words. Vygotsky thought that that private speech then develops further, becomes internalized, becomes sort of taken, in, taken within, and becomes the inner speech that we know, that we experience in everyday life. Along the way, there are some quite important uh, transformations that happen to the speech. For example, in my book, I talk about my daughter, Athena, who's pictured here when she was two, a long time ago. Um, she asks herself a question, I need some cars, and she replies, two cars. So it's like she asks herself a question, and she answers the question herself. But at the same time, she also abbreviates what she's saying. She doesn't need to say to herself, I need two cars. She says, just two cars. So our inner speech is very often condensed, squashed, squashed up. It's almost like a note, a note form version of what we might say out loud. So very roughly, that's what Vygotsky argued happens within a speech. Another quick bit of audience participation. Hands up if you talk to yourself out loud. Okay, so I'd say most people here sometimes talk to themselves out loud. That kind of doesn't quite fit with Vygotsky's theory and that he seemed to suggest that it all becomes internalized, all becomes completely silent and happens just up here in the head. We know now that a lot of people, a lot of adults talk to themselves out loud in certain situations. I tend to talk to myself out loud when the going gets tough, when things become difficult. I wouldn't mind betting that many of you do the same. Somehow talking to yourself out loud helps when you're really struggling with a task. Here's somebody who talks to himself out loud. Yeah. And in this little exchange which um, Murray gave to the Times, 
um, it followed his uh, the first of a um, br uh, British male Grand Slam win for 70 odd years. It was the 2012 US Open victory, I think. And he credited that win uh, against Djokovic with the fact that he, he, he took himself off for a toilet break he, and he just gave himself a right old talking to in front of the mirror in the bathroom. And he said it out loud. <clears throat> and he describes this as being a real turning point in the, in the match when he came back from a deficit and he went on to, to win that famous victory. So we all do it and it can be incredibly beneficial to us as well. Now, how do we go about studying this stuff? And in particular, the stuff that does go on silently inside. How do we study inner speech? If I was Mel Gibson, I'd simply be able to peer into the mind of the person next to me. I didn't mention the really dodgy thing about this movie, which is that Mel can read other people's minds, but he can only read women's minds. <coughs> Let's not go there. So, <laughs> so Mel can simply peer into the mind of the person next to him. And actually, it was pointed out to me recently that a much better model here would be Suki Stackhouse from, from True Blood, who also hears people's thoughts, she can listen into people's thoughts, and she also hears words. She hears people talking to themselves. How do we study this stuff? Well, when I was starting out as a researcher, there really wasn't very much research on it. Many people would have said, this, you just can't research this area. There's, nothing you, there's no way of finding out what's in people's heads. That really has changed. I was asked to review the evidence for New Scientist a couple of years ago. And I wrote a feature article on it. Um, there's a lot of research out there because uh, methodologies have changed. We've got new neuroimaging techniques and so on. Um, one of the things that we can do these days is we, we de developed a little app called Inner Life. This simply sends you an alert on your phone um, several times a day, asking you questions about what your inner speech was like at the time of the alert. And we've used this to gather some data on people's everyday uh, inner speech. Another thing that you can do is use neuroimaging. So we've, we've put people into a brain scanner, we've asked them to do different kinds of inner speech, uh, and we've looked to see what the neural activations are that result. And this diagram, it's one of the lovely diagrams produced by Mary Robson for the book, is a quick sort of summary of what happens when we do a particular kind of inner speech, which we call dialogic inner speech. And this is where you really are having a conversation with yourself in inner speech. You're talking either to yourself or to another person. You're doing it all internally. You're really having an internal dialogue. And what we found with the study is that you've got activation in the standard <coughs> brain network that's known to be involved when you generate language. But you also have this interesting activation going on at the same time in a part of the brain that is known to be involved in thinking about other people's minds. It's part of the social cognition or theory of mind system. And we found that interesting because in order to do an internal dialogue, you've both got to do, be able to do some language, but you've also got to be able to represent the mind of the other individual that you're interacting with. So you're having a dialogue with someone you're having a conversation with somebody, it might be with yourself or with your mum or with God or whoever, but you've got to be able to represent that other perspective in some way. And that's why we see this theory of mind bit of the brain <coughs> kicking in when people did, are doing this particular kind of inner speech. I'm going to finish this little introductory bit by talking a bit about another experience which many people would think is entirely different 
very strange, very alien, very much unlike the ordinary <laughs> inner speech that we've been talking about so far. And that's the experience of hearing voices. Hearing voices when there's nobody around to do the speaking. We often tend to think of this as being a feature of severe mental illness. When we see it in the media, it normally comes accompanied with a helpful picture of a head clutcher. Because apparently hearing voices means you do this the whole time. There's been a campaign on social media, thankfully, which is starting to work, to try and stamp out this kind of stigmatizing uh, in representation of people with, uh, who hear voices. Um, as I say, it's, it is gathering some ground, but there is still a huge amount of stigma out there about hearing voices. As I say, it's usually associated with severe mental illness. If you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, you've got a 70% chance that you'll hear voices. But people with a whole range of other psychiatric uh, diagnoses will also hear voices, everything from PTSD to eating disorders. And then beyond that, outside psychiatric um, classification, there are plenty of people who don't meet the criteria for mental illness who hear voices, fairly, sometimes fairly regularly. Most, you know, a lot of people will have experiences of having one-off voice hearing experiences. Something like five to 15% of people will have some kind of voice hearing experience in their lives. And if we include states of consciousness known as hypnagogia, which is where you're either falling asleep or waking up from sleep, these experiences are very, very common. Most people have these kinds of experience in the, on, the, on the fringes of sleep. So voice hearing is not just about schizophrenia. Voice hearing is a complex, highly varied experience that cuts across um, cultures, across history, that, that has all sorts of nuances and richness, which I think we're going to talk a bit more about in a second. Just to try and bring this back to inner speech, why do I mention the two things together? Well, what I've tried to do in the book is put the two things side by side in their richness, but also show how scientifically there are some good reasons to think that they are connected. And there's a very powerful theory that's had a fair bit of support that says that when somebody hears a voice, what's actually happening is that something's going wrong with the usual process of producing inner speech. And the simplest way to demonstrate this, actually, is to show how it works in the brain. Usually what happens when you produce any sort of language is that this part of your brain, towards the front on the left, <coughs> activates and starts generating the language. There's a part of your brain a bit further back in the temporal lobe that is specialised for, for perceiving speech. So that's the part of your brain that's activating now as you hear me speech and comprehend what I'm saying. And, of course, if you say something this part of the brain will also activate because you're hearing yourself speak. So what happens in the typical case is that this part of the brain sends a little internal message to that part saying, hey, don't worry, you're about to hear some speech, but don't, what, care, don't pay too much attention to it because it's just you speaking. So it dampens down the response of that part of the brain. And the idea is that when people who hear voices talk to themselves, something goes wrong with this internal communication system. The signal either just doesn't happen or it doesn't get through in the right way or it gets delayed or something like that. So that people hear this internal voice, don't get the usual tip off that it's them who's produced it, and so they experience it as an external voice. Now, as I say, that's been quite a powerful uh, theory. There's quite a lot of evidence to support it. There are lots of problems with it, which I are going to 
some depth in uh, in the book, um, and we can perhaps talk a bit about it um, as we go on. So I think that's enough by way of preamble. <coughs> I just couldn't resist showing you the beautiful cover of the American ed edition, which is coming out in October. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, Charles, thanks for that. You're, uh, you, you quote my favorite philosopher in the book, Miguel de Unamuno, to think is to talk to oneself. Can there be thought without language? Uh, I, I'm interested in where actually language came from. Um, it, it's not the focus of this book. It, it, it's more about how we do language. But the two are clearly interconnected in some way. Um, do, what, what would an animal's experience of... They have kinds of language. I'm fumbling for something here. It is distinctive about us, isn't it? Yes, I think it's a really good question. It's a very, very old philosophical question about whether language is necessary for thought. And what I always like to do at this point is to stop the philosophers and say, what do you mean by thought? Tell me, what, be clearer about what you mean by thought and thinking. Because very often philosophers, apologies if there are any in the audience, <coughs> please, please come in with your questions later on. Um, Philosophers are often, I think, really, really vague, speaking as a non-philosopher, really, really vague about what they mean by thought and thinking. As a psychologist, I want to be much more precise and say, well, there, there's, there's this kind of mental experience and there's that kind of mental experience, and let's carve them up and let's try and understand them separately, and so on. So I think the, sing uh, the, the simple answer to your question comes from Vygotsky, actually. Vygotsky thought, going back to that diagram I showed you, children start off closely socially engaged with others before they get language. Language comes along about 18 months to two years. That doesn't mean that a baby without language is not intelligent. Babies without language are extremely intelligent. They can all do all sorts of really, really, really clever stuff. And so can animals who don't have our kind of language. For Vygotsky, that's not the issue. The issue is what happens when language comes along and starts to work with, with mm -hmm. thought? What how does language give th thinking a boost? And his theory was really about all the many ways in which language gives thinking a boost. To give you a very simple illustration, he argued that language is a kind of tool for thinking. So you can use words as a tool, just like you'd use tools to put up a garden shed. You can use words to help yourself to think through a problem, to plan things out, to plan out a sequence of events, to chastise yourself, to encourage yourself, to motivate yourself. You can use language in all these different ways as a, as a tool for thinking. And you see this happening with children. You see it in front of your eyes. You can hear it happening. They're, you, they're thinking things through in words. And possibly having thoughts. I think where this becomes really interesting is whether there are certain kinds of thoughts and intellectual endeavors that you couldn't have, that are so complex, that, that require such a sort of high-powered, upgraded, kind of thinking that you couldn't have them without language. I don't, I don't really have an answer to that. I just know that language really changes how you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's um, turn to hearing voices of the sort you study at Durham. I'm, I want to come to the religious angle in a minute, but uh, you've given us a, an illustration there, but can you please guide us through current good thinking on the subject and compare it to the medicalizing model that um, is only fairly recently being questioned, isn't it? That, that if you hear voices at all, there's a kind of pathology associated with it. 
Talk us through um, what we might think of as the ordinary everydayness of hearing voices. We'll come to religious voices and possibly patho a path, you know, the pathology of it in a minute. But but as an everyday experience, how do you, you you've given us a, a diagram? Talk us a little more into it. What's actually kind of happening? Because you've got some interesting words on it in the book. I think a really important point to make at this stage is that hearing voices for many, many people is an incredibly distressing and frightening experience. It's not something that's well understood. It's not something you get any sympathy from uh, from the rest of the world for. Um, it's a very, very hard thing to deal with for many people. That much has changed, much is changing before our eyes in this respect. There has been this entire rethinking of the medical model of hearing voices. They, it used to be seen that um, hearing voices just meant you had schizophrenia and schizophrenia was, was seen as a degenerative brain disease and that is all falling apart, that is all breaking up for all sorts of um, reasons. And it's partly because voice hearers themselves have reclaimed their experience. There's been a, an important movement in the last 25 years or so initiated in Holland took very strong root in the UK um, and is now really taking off in America just you know over the last few years it's, it's happened and this is known as the hearing voices movement and it's where people who hear voices have said actually you don't own my experience I own my experience I'm gonna make sense of my experience working with other people who have the same kind of experience and so there are hundreds now of hearing voices groups all around the country we on our website have an interactive map of hearing voices groups, uh, both in the north northeast of England and in Scotland, um, showing you where the closest one is. And simply, these groups involve people getting together and talking about hearing uh, their, their experiences. And many people find these a really, really powerful way of of finding a different accommodation of of the of their experiences. So a lot has changed. It's partly because of the concept of schizophrenia and how that has fared. Mm. It's partly because for many people, the drugs don't work. You know, antipsychotics can be useful for, for probably for the majority of people with a schizophrenia diagnosis who hear voices, but for many, many they don't work. There are other ways of making sense of this experience, and that's what I was keen to explore. Tell us a little bit about how you how you do work um, with people who have these experiences, the kind of non, uh, the ones that, that you wouldn't think of medicating in any way or pathologizing. Um, fascinating insights um, into the work. And very funny things the voices say. Um, and so they kind of befriend the voice, but sometimes after they've spent some time uh, with what you're doing at Durham, the voices can cease. Um, so uh, talk us through how, you, I mean, th there's clearly a lot of listening going on by you guys in Durham uh, to this community. Tell us a bit about how you do it. You know, what actually happens if I went to one of these workshops, as it were? I think there are two approaches that need to be distinguished. There's the hearing voices movement approach, which involves hearing voices groups, where people who hear voices work together to find different accommodations. and. You know, there are some incredibly powerful moving stories of people who, for example, have suffered terrible trauma. I can think of Eleanor Longdon as a, a quite well-known example, who was terribly abused as a child. Uh, as a result, was, was tormented by horrible voices for a long time. And there's a moment at which she, 
she, she talks back to her most unpleasant voice and says, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. Let's move on. Let's, um, so talk, you know, forgiving her tormentor, in, in a way, was a, was a turning point in her, in her experience. That we, we don't, I, I, don't, I don't join hearing voices groups because I don't hear voices, so I, I don't belong there. Mm-hmm. But what we do as a separate thing, which is sort of connected, is we, we use what's known as cognitive behavior therapy, which is well known as a, uh, an approach to treating depression and anxiety, and it's beginning to be used for psychotic experiences, which generally includes uh, hearing voices. Um, and what we've done there is we've worked with a psychologist called Guy Dodgson at Newcastle, and he'd been developing a manual based on trying to distinguish different kinds of voice hearing experience and then tailoring therapies so that they fit the different kinds of experience. And simply what we've done is we've come along and said, look, there's a lot more to the inner speech model of hearing voices. We've got lots to tell you about how inner speech works. And we've worked that into the manual, and we're currently trialing this new version of the of the CBT manual with him. But many of the other things that have been happening around the project have been valuable. So for example, Guy's been doing some work um, on the writer's research, which I think we might talk about in a second. Uh, so writers, people who hear voices in a spiritual context, by taking more positive interpretations and telling people who are distressed about them, about those different interpretations, it can be quite beneficial. Mm. Um, I'm very interested, as you might expect, in the the religious um, phenomenon of hearing voices, since it lies at the root of the formation of most of the great religious traditions. The thing I love about your book is that you offer a purely naturalistic explanation of what's going on, yet you write about it with great sensitivity and understanding. You talk about Joan of Arc, Marjorie Kemp, and Julian of Norwich as examples. Give us your take on what's going on in them. You're not reductionist, but you're not supernaturalist. So uh, you, you, you offer a very positive and humane interpretation of what's going on in them. Tell the audience about what it is you, you're making of this. Because it's fascinating stuff and very rich stuff. Thank you. They've, they've three, the, the names you mentioned are three very, very different women from roughly the same period of history. Uh, we know quite a bit about Joan of Arc. She's obviously pretty famous. I've, I thought that far fewer people knew about Marjorie Kemp and Julian Norwich, so I was keen to, to, to really explore them. And for me, the thing with Marjorie and Julian was that they, these two women met roughly roughly 600 years ago in Norwich. So Marjorie Kemp was a woman who, uh, whose, whose claim to fame is that she wrote the first <coughs> autobiography in the English language. Nobody had ever written about their life before in English. So she's a ex- huge literary figure, hardly known at all. Um, she wrote this book called The Book of Marjorie Kemp. It exists in one manuscript. There's only one of them. It's in the British Library. Um, and she describes her unusual experiences. She doesn't just hear voices, she also sees visions, she sees Christ sitting on her bedside, but she, she has these rich experiences of hearing the voice of God, uh, he- hearing Christ, sometimes as clearly as if there was another person in the room. There's one scene where she hears the voice so loudly, she says, if another person had been speaking there, I would not have heard him. 
So in other words, the voice was completely compelling of her attention, and it was out loud, and it was powerful. Other times, it's more like a... Well, other times, the voice actually takes a different form. It becomes the voice of a robin redbreast, the, 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 the um, sound of a bellows blowing in her ear. It takes forms that aren't actually human, but she describes... She, she, she brings these experiences together. And she writes about them in this, in this fascinating way. She also goes to visit Julian of Norwich. Julian was an anchorite, which means that she lived in a cell attached to a church. You can still visit... Um, the church in, in Norwich and the cell, the sort of reconstructed cell where she lived attached to the church. And she went to see Julian because Julian was, was well known as an, as an expert on these matters. So the women were about 30 years apart in age. Julian was a very different person, a brilliant writer, brilliant theologian. Her claim to fame is that she wrote the first book in, in English known to have been written by a woman. She was the first woman writer in English. I think it's extraordinary that these women mm. are not better known and I love the fact that they actually met so what I wanted to do in the book was dramatize their meeting and try and bring that alive to give you an idea of how rich I found looking at these experience these writings as a psychologist I can honestly say that I've thought differently about my model of inner speech by thinking about Marjorie Kemp and thinking in particular about what her editor Barry Windiat who's a medievalist at Cambridge wrote about Marjorie's experiences and he said something like, we need to start to understand Marjorie's voice hearing as an inner dialogue, as a, as a mind um, talking to itself. And that made me think, that made me kind of tweak my model. And, you know, um, so what, what, I, what I've done with my model of inner speech is I allow for this internal dialogue where you represent two different perspectives and the, the language system is working and the social cognition system is working. But in terms of the ontology, in terms of the underlying reality... God can be in that dialogue, whether or not he exists. I can be completely agnostic about whether God is ontologically real. He, as long as he fits in my slot, mm. you can have an inner dialogue with him. And he's having this, Marjorie's having the same sort of inner dialogue with God as I might have with my mum, or you might have with yourself, mm. or, or whatever. Let's um, move finally before I open it up to uh, the, the book festival itself has been in, involved in this uh, very interesting program. Um, you're a writer of fiction. Uh, you have very, very interesting things to say about the voices that writers hear. Uh, you begin your book, for instance, snorting uh, with laughter at something your own writer's voice has muttered into your inner... I think you're on the subway in London, um, and you suddenly burst out laughing because your own inner voice has uh, said something that's quite amusing. But open that for us, and about the, the, the Durham work, the, the, you know, the work that you've been doing with, with writers and its connection to the Edinburgh Book Festival. Absolutely. Um, as a fiction writer, I've been interested for a long time in where stuff comes from. We're often asked at readings, you know, where do your ideas come from? And a common question that writers face is, do you hear the voices of your characters? And this was kind of going around in my mind, and I thought, yeah, it would really be good to get a, a really kind of detailed answer to that. Um, <coughs> so various things came together in a really nice way a couple of years ago. The book festival wanted to do something on inner voices. They got some funding from the Wellcome Trust to run a series. We were involved, you were involved in one of the events. They were really successful. Um, but we also tried to piggyback a couple of things onto that. So we thought, we're here at a, an amazing you know, international writing 
uh, book festival, let's make use of the fact that hundreds of writers are coming through the doors. And so the festival arranged for us to send a, a survey to all of the writers attending that year's festival. And it was eight, 800 odd writers come through every festival. Um, we got replies from about 90, about 90 people filled in our questionnaire. Um, a further 20 or so volunteered to be interviewed in depth about their, <coughs> the hearing the voices of their characters. Because it occurred to me that when you usually ask that question of, a, of an author, especially in this sort of setup, you know, imagine asking a famous novelist, do you hear the voices of your character? You're going to go straight into the published, pub, publicity spiel, probably. Mm -hmm. You're going to get the standard PR interview response. And we thought, if we just give writers a bit of a chance to go a bit further, mm -hmm. go a bit deeper into that question, we might find something really interesting. We did find that most of the writers heard the voices of their characters. We found they had other sensory experiences of their characters as well. They felt their presence, they, they smelled them, they saw them. Um, for about a quarter of the writers, the, 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 the clarity of the voice they heard was as clear as if the person had been in the room with them. Um, and about 40% of the writers said they could enter into a dialogue with their, with their characters. I think that last point is quite interesting because I would say on the whole, the writers thought that hearing the voices of their characters wasn't so much having a conversation with them. It was more a kind of overhearing, more a kind of tuning in to something. And eavesdropping, I think, is the best word. You're listening in to your character speaking without them actually talking back to you. And that, I mean, that's certainly congruent with my experience of writing fiction. And I think that's probably, for most writers, that's probably how it pans out. We also had an opportunity, again, capitalising on the fact that we were here and The Guardian were here. Um, we asked Guardian readers on an internet survey about the voices they heard when they, were, when they read fiction. So when you read fiction, do you hear the voices of, their of your characters? And um, we can perhaps talk about, a bit more about that in, in Q&A if anyone's interested. But as a kind of headline, one in seven of our respondents said that they heard the voices of the characters in the fiction they were reading as clearly as if there'd been someone in the room with them. Mm -hmm. Final technical question. Um, years ago, I took a thing called a speed reading course um, uh, because I was doing what um, Augustine saw Ambrose was not doing, which is reading every... I'm, I, would, I would be reading every word to myself as I read. And I heard about a speed reading course where you were able to flash diagonally down the pages. Um, and I did the course and it speeded me up, but it took the pleasure out of reading. <laughs> um, so it, what are we doing actually when we, I mean, what the, the kind of eye-mind thing when we're actually reading a text? And are there ways, uh, Oscar Wilde could take in a whole page. He just kind of photographed it. I mean, uh, this is not strictly on the topic, but I'm interested in you as a psychologist. There are different ways of doing that, aren't there? Yeah, I'm, I don't know really about the research around speed reading. I, I suspect I'd like to be able to read faster, but I, I suspect I'd lose the pleasure of reading. Or mm -hmm. lose, I'd, I'd lose a lot of the pleasure of reading. What I can say is that there's growing evidence that when we read, we do kind of sound the words mm -hmm. out in our heads, and we're using something like inner speech. So effectively what writers are doing when we're when they're giving us some fiction to read is they're sort of colonising our inner speech. They're making us, 
the reader, sound out the words that they, the writer, mm. want to orchestrate and use our own inner speech mm. to do so. And they do that in fascinating ways, in complex ways, in ways we're only just beginning to only just beginning to ask the questions, actually. Mm. Um, but for example, it takes longer to read a word that takes longer to say out loud. And that's been experimentally proven mm. quite mm. nicely. So that's a quite a, a clear indication that when we read, we are sounding things out internally, because otherwise the long words should take just as long to read as the short words. Thank you. Fascinating. Um, can we have the lights up and we will uh, open it to um, you. There is a wandering mic. Um, can I? Yes, there's a hand up there. Um, Thank you. Um, fascinating to, to, to hear your exposition there. Um, the question that leaps to mind is, is there any evidence or do you have any thoughts on the experience in terms of internal voices of people who are either deaf or have aphasia or something which affects their speech? That's a really good question. Um, and I go into both topics in the book, actually. I can deal with aphasia a bit, a bit more quickly, I suppose. Um, it's sort of mixed evidence with aphasia. There's some evidence that the one case of a person with aphasia had complete aphasia, couldn't couldn't speak, couldn't, couldn't interact with uh, using spoken language at all, but could just about read. It took him a while to read, and he had to kind of stop after every sentence and sort of put the book down and look up into the space. But he was taking in the information. So he, he had enough in it. He was somehow performing that function. Another famous case of somebody with aphasia, Dr. Jill T uh, Bolt Taylor, who wrote a book about her experience, said that when she lost her language, she also lost her inner speech. And when she lost her inner speech, she lost her sense of self. She lost a sense of who she was as a person. So we need to know much more about aphasia. I'd love to find out more. As far as deafness is concerned, I got into that <coughs> through hearing voices and coming across some fascinating work by uh, Jo Atkinson, who is a researcher at UCL who herself has been profoundly deaf since childhood. And she works on, on deaf, deaf language and cognition in a, in a variety of top, topics, but she's done some groundbreaking work on people with a schizophrenia diagnosis who hear voices. And the standard story here is that somebody who's deaf um, complains of hearing voices, and the, the person who's working with them says, well, you can't be hearing voices because you're deaf. You've never heard anything. How can you be hearing voices? And the response is, I'm hearing voices. And the way that they are making their response is they're using exactly the right signs, the signs that, you would, that are exactly what you would use if you were saying that for, for real. They are saying it for real. You know, that's, that is their experience. And this got Joe very interested in what, what could be going on there. Deaf people do hear voices. And the question is, how, how is that manifested? What is that like? Um, deafness research is complicated because there's so much, so much variety in terms of how much language exposure people have had, depending on when the deafness, how the de deafness developed. So it's a complicated, slightly messy area of research. And when you're talking about deaf people with schizophrenia, you're working with a fairly small sample. But um, Joe's really changed our thinking about this. I'm glad to say she's joining our project for um, a short time to help us to work this stuff through. And she's helped us to think about hearing voices not as an auditory phenomenon, not as a sound in the air, or not, not as a kind of acoustic stimulus, 
but more a sense of being communicated with. And so deaf people are hearing a voice. They're, what, they're, what they're doing is they're hearing, they're having a sense that somebody's communicating with them. And that needs a fair bit of unpicking and qualifying and, and, and so on. Um, it, it's also the case that deaf people will, have, will hallucinate speech in sign. So they'll hallucinate, they'll have sort of peripheral vision of people signing to them. Or maybe they'll only, I can't do any sign language, I'm sorry, but those of you who maybe who do know sign, the signs are attenuated, so you just see what the fingers are doing, or you just see one half of a two-handed movement, or so on. Um, so they're getting some sort of visual sign uh, version of the <coughs> voice. And the same thing seems to apply with inner speech. So deaf people use inner sign in thinking, it seems, uses some of the same brain processes that we use when we do inner speech. They just do what we do. They just do it in a different um, modality. Mm. Anyone else here? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And then up there. Yeah. 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 No. 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 Don't. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, you've even lost your shot now. But we'll come <laughs> back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Go there first. Uh, it's on a loop. Loop. You see. Thank you. Um, hi, Charles. Um, yeah. I used to teach German. And I did some research with my students because one of them um, was a clutterer. Um, I don't know if people are aware the stutterers and clutterers, they're kind of opposite of one another. And um, what they discovered is that you had things like delayed auditory feedback um, to help them. So that instead of hearing their voice in normal time, they were hearing it a fraction of a second after or a fraction of a second before. Uh, but what I found work with him was if you played white noise to him, he could speak English perfectly well. Uh, when he spoke German, he didn't clutter at all. That, that was really weird. Can you explain what cluttering means? I'm not sure, we, I'm not sure we're all familiar. I'll, I'll try and say it. I was up cluttering, a lot enough as, as you're speaking. You see what I mean? Yeah. 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 And here... The, the, I just just make one comment about the different language thing. I'm, I, that's really fascinating. I'm really interested in, in the different affordances that different languages give to our inner speech. So the lady who said she speaks uh, in both speaks herself in both Spanish and English. Maybe there are maybe there are qualities that different languages have that make certain kinds of inner speech work well, work not so well. I'm really fascinated, and, and also the sort of transformations that happen to language as it's internalised. If you've got a highly inflected language like Russian, for example, does that, does that change the whole process of condensation, of the compression of, of um, out external language as it becomes internalised? It's, it's wide open. Thank you. I just wanted to ask if there was any link with tinnitus and hearing voices. Yeah, that's a, there are some really important connections there. Um, one thought is that sometimes tinnitus is understood as being a kind of tuning in to something that has actually already, already been that has always been there. So that the tone that you hear or the tones that you hear with tinnitus is something that's always been there, but for some reason you're just starting to attend to it. And that sort of parallels what some people who hear voices say, which is that when the voice hearing starts, but also when it goes away, there is a sense that the that you're tuning into something that was always there. So I've heard a few people say this. There's a few examples in the literature of people saying this. It's not that the voices suddenly started speaking. The voices were always speaking. It's just you started to attend to them. And can you use that to treat tinnitus or 
find a way of getting rid of it or what? I think that is one of the approaches with tinnitus. It's not, it's not a topic I know a huge yeah. amount on. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, I just wonder, uh, in this scenario of uh, inner voices, uh, do you think uh, uh, music or sound and uh, light uh, vision or some shades of colors can be also understood as uh, alternatives of other sorts of languages? And also for abled performing artists, musicians, and uh, painters, they the uh, their difference to uh, most of the people who enjoy the vision, the the shades, movements, and the music is they can master uh, the sound and the vision and the movement. So, do you think in this way, uh, people, especially those ones who have some kind of uh, uh, mental uh, uncomfortableness, uh, can be treated in the way that uh, uh, music therapy and uh, visual therapy uh, interact with the languages? Well, I suppose a couple of points there. It's a really uh, rich question. Um, one, one really simple answer is that, yes, one of the standard things that you do with CBT for psychosis, if somebody hears voices, is say, go and listen to your music. Put your music on. And for many people, it really, really helps. There's good reasons why psychologically that might be going on, because if your kind of language processing system is blocked by music with words, perhaps, then it might make the voices uh, diminish. Um, and just another quick point is to do with inner, inner music. So I'm really interested in the connection between auditory verbal hallucinations or hearing voices and musical hallucinations and what the analogue of inner speech is mm. for music. So I've written a bit about what I call inner music. And maybe that when people have musical hallucinations, what's happening is that a kind of internal musical stream becomes oddly perceived, oddly attributed. So that's another topic on which we need a huge amount more research. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for a fascinating talk. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about dreams and the dialogue that goes on in dreams, which can be quite remarkable. And I sometimes might wake up and wonder where that's come from. Mm -hmm. It's not a conversation that goes on when I'm alert, but when I'm asleep. Yeah, I think, I think it's so interesting. It's not, it's not a topic I've researched. There is a fair amount of dream <laughs> research going on, but I'm not aware that it's really tried to connect yet to uh, inner speech. Many people sort of feel that their dreams are largely visual and not particularly auditory. I think it seems quite common. I'd, I'd certainly say that about, about my own dreams until recently I had a dream where I experienced an incredibly loud musical sound, like a high, f uh, you know, audio system being turned up really, really loudly, making me sort of jump in my dream, which is, but that was unusual for me. Um, I also often dream of, t of text, I sort of dream of writing, and I dream that I'm, whole screeds of prose go through my head, it's probably not very good prose, but it's, I wake up and I'm kind of, oh, I was in the middle of writing, I'd just written two pages there. Um, so I think it's, again, I'm afraid it's something that needs further research. I had a, a, a dream, a, f a friend came to me in a dream and said to me, I'm 90, and he died um, age 75, um, 15 years ago, so mm. it's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, your model of um, between inner speech and speech perception, um, I was wondering about the functionality of inner speech, because sometimes it feels um, less useful than 
for problem solving, I work as a, as a software engineer, and when we formulate the problem to other people, what we call, we need a cardboard engineer, whereby we take anyone in the room and we just formulate the problem out loud. And I was wondering, surely something happened with speech perception that doesn't happen within a speech? So that's why there's a benefit to saying things out loud. Yeah, I think my guess about what's going on there is when you, when you do it out loud, you've got a bit more of a handle on it. When, when I talk to myself in my head, it's very evanescent. It's easy to forget what I've just said. Whereas if, it's almost if you say it out loud, it's out there in the world. It's coming back to you actually through your ears or through somebody else might, might hear it and remember what you're saying and so on. So it gives the thought a more material form. And I suspect that's why saying it out loud is what we turn to when things become more difficult. I don't think it's anything sort of in principle different between saying it out loud and saying it to yourself in your mind. I mean, a lot of my thinking, even quite difficult, you know, complex stuff, I will do completely silently. It may just be I get a bit of an extra boost by saying it out loud, which is why, if I can, I, I would tend to do so. It's a, it's a really good question. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I was wondering if any work has been done on people who have uh, difficulties with uh, communication in terms of their understanding. I was thinking, for example, of Asperger's syndrome and so on. Is there a similar difficulty in understanding for the internal communication as well? Yeah, another f superb question. Um, simple story about, and I'm going to horribly generalise and lump things together. I'll, I'll just talk about a autism spectrum disorders generally. Um, if, if the argument there is that autism, in terms of its original definition, was defined in terms of um, unusual social interaction or deficient social interaction. If that's the case, and I realize I'm generalizing horribly, but if that's the case, then in Vygotsky's model, you won't have the kind of social dialogues that you need to develop a certain kind of dialogic private speech in inner speech. And therefore, you shouldn't develop dialogic inner speech in the way that um, people without autism uh, do, generally. There's a little bit of research that actually supports that idea, that supports the idea that um, this is a group of young adults with autism who were using inner speech, who could use inner speech, and did use inner speech for certain tasks like rehearsal. Like, you know, that thing where you're going around the supermarket and you're rehearsing to yourself the last few items on the list to help you to remember them. That's what we call rehearsal. Uh, so a sort of short-term memory strategy. There's evidence that people with autism would use inner speech for that purpose, but for something a bit more elaborate, a bit more elaborate that I would call, I would, I would say, required dialogic inner speech. They don't, they don't use inner speech for that purpose, which I think maps quite nicely onto what Vygotsky's theory would predict. But again, I mean, there's a bit of research on autism, but but not a not a massive amount. Final few questions there. Thank you. Um, Richard, you'll be <clears throat> maybe interested to know that uh, Woody Allen uh, said that he did a speed reading course and then he read War and Peace and he said, it's about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that struck me is that uh, the, the novelist Marilyn Robinson, she, who wrote Housekeeping, and then it was, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and then she wrote uh, Gilead, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And she was asked at the book festival here about 
why the the gap? And she said, uh, she said, I, I wait, I wait until I've got the narrator's voice in my head, mm. and then I sit down and write and hardly change anything, which I thought was really interesting way of proceeding. And one last thing, Richard, you you yourself. Uh, went through a phase when you were speaking in tongues, mm -hmm. and you talk about that in your autobiography with, of an encounter with a Chinese woman in Waverley Station. I think mm -hmm. it was. What, what did you think was going on when you were speaking in <laughs> tongues? God, this is a real diversion. Um, <laughs> the, the, there are two kinds of tonguing. There's glossolalia, where where the speaker is actually speaking another language, um, um, and there's there's a version where it's just a noise. Um, and I had this charismatic experience in London, and I couldn't stop doing it. I sat in the lavatory all the way back from London because I didn't want to disturb the other passengers. And I thought I was probably speaking Mandarin Chinese because it sounded like that. When I got off the train at Waverley Station, I saw a young Chinese woman, and I went over to her and uttered what I was saying to myself in the train, and she ran up Waverley steps <laughs> screaming. So uh, um, um, someone else defined... Um, uh, glossolalia as, as um, prayer that makes a noise. Um, I don't think there's any meaningful content in it, but it can be enormously releasing. Um, and uh, like voices, it left me after about 18 months, but it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> but this is not about me. Charles, that's been a fascinating hour. Uh, I hope you'll go and buy his book. It, 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 it's a very interesting read and we'll keep in touch with what's happening in Durham, and we'll have you back to tell us how it's going. Great. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.